0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and we are now all 80 plus. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Kevin Boyle, professor of history at Northwestern University. His new book is titled The Shattering America in the 1960s. I'm joined by 12 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Uh, I'm Alden Briscoe and uh, grew up in the East Coast in Connecticut. Uh, now live in California, just south of San Francisco. But I do have some connections to Michigan because my great-grandfather moved out from Baltimore to drive trains there. My grandfather <laughs> went to the University of Michigan. My father was born in Detroit and went to the University of Michigan. And I lived for three and a half years in Flint. So
2: oh. in oh, you, you definitely qualify as an official Michigander. That's right. <laughs> right.
3: Jerry.
1: Good morning, uh, Jerry Secundi. I grew up in Washington, DC. Um, Peace Corps, uh, Department of Justice, oil company state government, et cetera, an environmental lawyer. And I had a very traumatic experience last month uh, on my birthday when my two kids said, I'm now officially elderly.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sean. Well, here in Ann Arbor, yep, I've uh, been in journalism of various kinds, ranging from Mohammed Speaks to the New York Times, and mainly put out the University of Michigan at a publication, university publication I put out for about 20 years or so but I've been retired for pretty much that same amount of time.
4: Uh, Mason Morfitt, uh, I'm calling you from Florida, uh, although my primary home is in Maine, where I'm working with a group of fellow yeah. citizens to try and get the town to do something serious about climate change. It's a challenge at a long distance, but uh, it's keeping me from uh, frying my brains out on the beach.
5: <laughs> Ken Manister, I'm uh, retired a law professor uh, at Santa Clara University I taught environmental law for many years. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, huh. and uh, perhaps more relevant is, for the last three years uh, before I moved to California, I played in the Evanston Symphony Orchestra.
3: Oh no okay. Oh, okay. Well, that's
5: what the con- that's what the conductor said frequently <laughs> 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 uh, when he heard me. <laughs> What was your instrument? What was your instrument? Uh, Violin. I still play the violin. Oh,
2: wow. Fabulous. Um,
5: Nick Bancroft uh, uh, in Medfield, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. Uh, Went to uh, undergraduate with many of these guys, Uh, Harvard Business School, then uh, into uh, the Peace Corps in India, Uh, cast iron foundries and machine shops for two years. Back. uh, Uh, I was brought up in Boston and uh, said I never wanted to work for a family organization, never wanted to work in a bank or investments or anything like that, did some manufacturing and then ended up working in Boston in a bank and family company. (laughs) (laughs) Peter. I'm present in Florida, right in the dead center of the state. The cattle ranch is on one side and the orange grows on the other. I, I should add uh, my Evanston connection. I'm from Evanston.
2: Oh, I, really? I, I oh,
5: went yeah. to Evanston. Yeah, I went to ETHS. I went to Evanston High School. Yeah. Jeff.
4: Okay. Well, um, I'm originally from Chicago. Right ah. after Harvard, I went to Venezuela uh, with what today we would call an NGO uh working in very poor communities in the hillsides of caracas and with uh my uh newly developed very fluent spanish i became and and a lot of doubts about all the things i'd been through i started i be, i became a sociologist and uh uh got, you know went to northwestern university got my degree there and you know phd and uh, taught for many years uh, and, uh, well, I'm now, I'm now living in Spain, have been for almost 20 years, I think. Um, and, um, uh, where we were very comfortable. My, my wife is originally from Argentina, so we were very comfortable with the language, um, and, uh, uh, writing fiction. So that's me.
6: All right. Fantastic. Jay. Uh, hello. Um, so I'm Jay Pasikoff, classmate of most of these people. Uh, I'm a New Yorker from the Bronx and came uh, came to Harvard to study math and wound up with astronomy from my freshman seminar, and I've been an astronomer uh, ever since. Most recently in Chile for a uh, total eclipse of the sun, uh, overflying out of Punta Arenas at the bottom of Chile with a successful expedition while I had some some cameras and other equipment with two colleagues on the ice in Antarctica, and we're busy working with our uh, solar eclipse data right now. Anyway, I'm home in Williamstown, Massachusetts at the moment, uh, where I am Professor of Astronomy at Williams College, just in the middle of my 50th year of teaching
7: at Williams.
2: Oh, congratulations.
7: Uh, <laughs> Hampton, Ham. I answer to both. Um, <laughs> I'm originally from New York and Boston. I had a scholarship to a prep school for six years, where I was one of what they call the cynical six that was constantly in trouble. But it's going to Harvard to get deprogram to, to slowly get deprogrammed from preppiness and uh, and and thereafter also. Uh, I I uh, I live in I've lived in Nashville since 1978. Mostly I've spent six months each in in Brazil and Puerto Rico. And uh, I I'm a clinical psychologist. I try to knit together what happens with individuals and uh, the the society. And uh, I think there's a lot in common. I've I've thought there's a lot in common between the. Uh, 60s and today and and but i also think it's really important for us to put our fingers on the uh, differences some of which is climate (laughs) urgency uh more than urgency climate devastation okay marcy
5: um i'm in new york i i'm working to correct on or to counter disinformation about the westway boondoggle um and all its successors, and changed the public policies and spending priorities that were embraced in all those battles, Um, and that I've worked on most of my life.
6: (laughs) Okay, David. I've spent most of my career with public broadcasting, live in Philadelphia, grew up in South America, which was I I don't think I've ever mentioned before. So I, I speak Spanish pretty well and Portuguese.
5: George. So I am currently in Ann Arbor. I am finally a resident, a permanent resident of the state of Michigan.
6: Great! And
5: I have been hanging out, watching football, drinking drinking single malt scotch, and riding our motorcycles. Not necessarily in that order.
2: (laughs) That's probably a good thing. (laughs)
0: Kevin Boyle, welcome. Thank you for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me, and it's really an honor to be with such a distinguished group of people. Uh, I teach American history at Northwestern. Um, As John and I were just chatting about beforehand, I was born and raised in Detroit. So in the course of my career, I have managed to move all of five hours down the road. And I have recently published the book that we're here to talk about today. It's titled The Shattering um, America in the 1960s. And I'm looking forward to talking with you about it, so I won't go on and on about it, though God knows that I probably could. Um, The argument of the book is that in the, particularly in the 1950s, the United States a particular political configuration was put together um, that benefited an awful lot of people. It broadened the middle class in a really dramatic way It also excluded key people um, in the huge portions of people in the United States. And what I'm arguing in the book is that in the course of the 1960s, that political configuration was broken open. And I trace that story, that breaking open, in three key ways. One is, and it's critical to the story, obviously, is the African-American freedom struggle. The other is the shattering of the military Cold War world through Vietnam. And the third is the breaking open of the government's regulation of sexuality. And, Hamp, your point earlier, I think, is really fundamentally important to me. I tried to trace is the ways in which those three stories, those three dynamics, transformed America, but also where they hit their limits. Where it was that that political order that was broken open in the early 1960s, in the course of the 1960s, tried to reconstitute itself in what what they called, what Richard Nixon famously called, the silent majority. I'm arguing was an attempt to restore what had existed in the 1950s. Now we couldn't do that completely, but in other ways, those social movements, those dramatic transformations, were blocked in the late 60s and early 1970s. And it's in that mix of transformation and of limits that we get the world that we are that we live in today.
4: We had large-scale collective movements uh, back in the 60s, but nothing lit, looked like uh-huh. this. So, <laughs> how, <laughs> you, well, have you got some quick ideas as to?
2: Yeah, that's, right? a, that's a wonderful question. I'll disagree slightly, not completely, but slightly with one point you made. Uh-huh. There were, of course, massive social movements in the United States in the 1960s the anti-war movement that we what we think of as the anti-war movement i'll come back to that civil rights movement obviously that were taking to the streets in order to promote progressive change but there were also very powerful counter movements in the united states in the 1960s that do bear some resemblance to what we see today it's not a perfect match and i'm not trying no. to argue. Or a straight line. But there was a there are important connections. One of the things that struck me over recent years is the number of times that Donald Trump was compared to Richard Nixon. I think that's the wrong analogy. Donald Trump compares really very powerfully to George Wallace. And George Wallace was a major figure. politics in the 1960s, obviously in Alabama, but also in that presidential campaign of 1968, where he came very close to preventing anyone from winning the presidency and would have triggered a crisis not entirely dissimilar to what Donald Trump had hoped to create this time last year, obviously in a slightly different way. One of the other things that I try to argue in the book is that there were There's obviously a very powerful anti-war movement in the United States, right, response to Vietnam. I argue there were three. There was the radical movement that we think of, that students in particular think of as the anti-war movement. There was a liberal anti-war movement that said the Cold War was a perfectly reasonable set of policies, but Vietnam was the wrong place to enforce it. That's a different critique than the radical one. And then there was a conservative one, and it was very powerful. It was kind of hidden because it didn't bring huge numbers of people in the streets too often, though it did bring huge numbers of people into the streets. And that movement argued that what the United States should do is escalate the war. 20% of Americans in 1967 believed that the United States should use atomic weapons on North Vietnam, 20%. The anti-war movement, what we think of as the anti-war movement, you know, the protesters at the Pentagon, 65 to 75% of Americans thought they were disloyal to their country. Americans hated the anti-war movement. And so some of the tendencies that we see in today's politics, that radical racial populism, that kind of America first idea, they were in the 60s, too. It's just that's part of the 60s history that we've lost. And part of what I'm trying to do is bring that side back into the story, too. Pro-war protests of massive size, they weren't as common. But right after, in the spring of 1967, for instance, there was a pro-war march in New York City that drew out somewhere around 50, 60,000 people. Right after the march on the Pentagon in the autumn of 1967, there were counter-protests the following weekend, counter-protests around the country that drew, again, thousands and thousands of people. Now, it's partly, Now, I'm not trying to say that those were ever equal in scale. Who, how, who organized them? That's a great question. They didn't have the center organizational structure that say SDS brought to the radical side of the movement, at least early on, they didn't have that, but they came out of organizations like the American Legion and Mm -hmm. they came out of um, what we tend to think of as the kind of hard hats. So Mm -hmm. New York, those of you who are New Yorkers, they were coming out of groups like the um, New York City Police Department or the York City Fire Department. And they drew out a lot, and other veterans groups, they drew out a lot of people, it was not, again, I don't wanna overstate this in terms of being out in the streets, but in the polls, in public sentiment, it was much more common to support the escalation of the war than it was to support the de-escalation of the war until relatively late. So when Richard Nixon becomes president, what he does is he follows essentially a policy that he learned from Dwight Eisenhower, that Americans do not want to see ground troops. Americans hate seeing ground troops in combat, and they hate seeing American boys coming home in coffins, but they really don't mind extensive bombing. And that's the policy he put in place. You pull down the troops on the ground, you escalate the bombing, which is exactly what Dwight Eisenhower had done in Korea. It's how he ended the Korean War. You pull down the troops and you escalate the bombing until you get an agreement settled. And that was incredibly popular. When Richard Nixon escalated the bombings in, say, Christmas of 72, the kind of infamous Christmas bombings, his popularity went up. And so my argument isn't that there were masses of marchers out in the streets in these pro-war positions. There were at times, but not extensively. But really, there was a lot of support for a quick war. That's what most Americans wanted. They wanted a quick, decisive victory. And when they didn't get that, they grew really angry and disillusioned.
7: So, so could you say that uh, Obama also continued uh, that uh, policy? Uh, and, and yes. He escalated some bombing, but he did the drones, which was the uh, similar sort of yeah. thing, so, so there's yeah. a continuity there. For, uh, yeah, that's
2: a fabulous connection, actually. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to steal that, if you don't mind. because. <laughs> that, really one of the key lessons of Vietnam for American policymakers wasn't, we shouldn't be involved in foreign wars. It's that we shouldn't have troops in foreign wars that what Richard Nixon understood, and again, I'm talking about politics. I'm, believe me, I'm not trying to come across as the, an apologist for Richard Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> but what Richard Nixon understood was the lessons that his mentor taught him. What Dwight Eisenhower understood so profoundly is as long as Americans don't have to see what's happening abroad, you can do all sorts of stuff. You can overthrow governments as
7: Dwight Eisenhower
2: yeah. did in a number of cases, right, in Guatemala, as he did in right. he wanted to do in Cuba. Mm-hmm. But don't let him see it. And don't let the troops go in, the American troops he had one in the entire eight years of Eisenhower's administration, he had one military intervention where the troops went on the ground, and that was Lebanon, and no mm-hmm. one was sure what the heck they were doing there. <laughs> come out really quickly. But I do think withdrawal from Afghanistan was obviously mangled in terms of its diplomacy, right? But it looks a heck of a lot like the withdrawal from. Vietnam, that what Richard Nixon also did in Vietnam and Henry Kissinger did is you basically cut a deal that said, look, we'll be out a few years. And then if it falls, if South Vietnam falls to the North Vietnamese, those are the breaks, right? We've done enough, we're getting out. And I think that's what the Trump administration thought it was doing. And it's what the Biden administration thought it was doing, that it was going to have a cushion, just didn't have a cushion. But I think it's a very similar policy in terms of withdrawing from a war that has become a massive political liability. Can you your hand up?
5: Yeah, um, your comments about Eisenhower are intriguing to me, um, and and I and and I I suspect it is naive of me to to think this, but I wonder if uh I, to some degree or what you think it, it, as to whether it's naive to think that some of eisenhower's um uh re- reluctance or choices not to send soldiers into comment is a reflection of his world war ii leadership and that he was responsible for sending you know what hundreds of thousands of of uh, soldiers and, and and it wasn't in other words he wasn't i don't you know again maybe i'm naive but um he wasn't Richard Nixon.
2: My argument about Richard Nixon is that, like many of us, like most of us, I think, you live your life in some ways backwards, right? You learn the lessons and you try to apply them. That's not to say, and I agree with you completely, Ken, that Dwight Eisenhower was Richard Nixon. He was a mentor. He came, but Dwight Eisenhower came to the presidency To be honest with you, when I started working on this book, I had no idea that Dwight Eisenhower was going to kind of loom over it to the extent that he did. It's been a learning process for me. He came to the presidency with a remarkable depth of military experience, obviously, that shaped his sense of the world. Now, he he certainly had his cynical side, and it's one of the things that Richard Nixon always grew frustrated with when he was president because Richard Nixon was Dwight Eisenhower's enforcer. He was the guy that Dwight Eisenhower sent off to do the dirty, dirty works the wrong word, but the, the hard-nosed politics. I do not believe that Dwight Eisenhower had the depth of cynicism yeah, not good. of Richard Nixon. Yeah. What I'm suggesting more is that Nixon took some really important policy lessons from his Eisenhower experience. And then he filtered them through Richard Nixon's own psychology. And that's one of the reasons why things went so haywire. There is no way that Dwight Eisenhower would have been engaged in the kind of plumber Watergate stuff. Just wouldn't have done that.
5: Kevin, can you you trace any of the thinking that characterizes Trump era conservatism that led to the activities of a year ago to the thinking and attitudes of conservatism in the 60s?
2: Yes, that's a, that's a fabulous question, thank you. Now I wanna make some distinctions because an awful lot of the conservatism of the last half century is not Trumpism. There is There are important distinctions that I think we have to maintain bef- between say a Reagan conservatism and Trumpism. Now, part of the problem, this is an editorial comment. Part of the problem the Republican Party has is that they're refusing to make those distinctions except for a handful of people. Yes, I do think that there are some through lines. And as I mentioned earlier, one of them, and I just want to expand on it, is the George Wallace through line. And that's the power of racist, I don't want to say Mm racist, racist populism that George Wallace tapped in, obviously in Alabama, he tapped into the kind of populism that was such a key part of the Jim Crow system. And that's a run-through, that that's a key part, obviously, of the Trump appeal of popul- of his version of populism. Mm-hmm. That's why I think there's a direct connection with George Wallace. So that's one piece. And then there is that kind of Thing about foreign policy, understanding that people like Richard Nixon really didn't have, or at least kind of vaguely had, that working class folks in particular have a very strong opposition to the mainstream of American foreign policy. White working class folks, in, well, both white working class folks and working class folks of people of color. One of the interesting things about the war, about Vietnam, is that there is a very clear correlation that support for Vietnam tied to class. Working class people opposed Vietnam at a greater percentage than well-to-do people. The biggest support for the war in Vietnam came from the well-to-do. Now that's not, it's nothing hard to explain about that. (laughs) Those working class people were the ones fighting it. But there was a correlation there and i think he tapped. i think trump tapped into that with some of the american first stuff right it's not your kids not the wealthy kids who are going to go off and fight in the military and that's true now too but i think the really key thing now that i'm talking the really key thing is that racist populism that that un, that yeah. girds so much of the trump mm-hmm. thing.
5: i want to follow just a quick follow-up on. i think it was george's question about the 60s, I recall reading within the past year or so, uh, an article saying that the real watershed for the Republican Party was the nomination of Goldwater, and that and that choices were made then that set us on the on the path towards where the GOP is now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite as convinced of that, because the one important thing, but there's one key component that I, I agree with that it's in 64, with the Goldwater campaign, right, that the Deep South went Republican for the first time. That's really important, obviously. But it's also important to remember that Goldwater lost the presidency by epic proportions. (laughs) You know, he carried the Deep South and he carried his home state, though that was a really close call, actually. He lost everything else. I think the critical moments of the 1960s in terms of progressive transformations go from 63 to 65, because what happened, and it goes, to be more precise, it goes from Birmingham in the spring of 1963. What happens in progressive politics through the end of the summer of 65, that's the key transformation of the 1960s in a progressive direction, and Goldwater helped do that by electing a supermajority of liberal Democrats. in 1964. But,
3: but Goldwater, I mean the uh, the Bercher and uh, Cook brothers, the whole uh, right yes. wing stuff that was behind Goldwater—they're playing a. You know, they, I have to give them credit for playing a longer game too. They could put their people in, and so they're preparing for Reagan.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely true. I don't think they did that, but I think that's absolutely true. But they needed, and this is kind of, it's not quite my book, but what the heck, uh, but they, that long game that you're describing needed an, one other key transformation that didn't happen in the 1960s, and that's the economic dislocation of the Mm mid and late 70s. That's what then opens the floodgates to a Goldwater-style politics, which is what Reagan kind of brings in, who was kind of a Goldwater Republican. But I'm not convinced, I mean, who knows, but I'm not convinced that that transformation would have happened, at least the way it did, had it not been for those massive economic dislocations from the 70s through the 70s, What happens in 19 – starting in 1966, very slowly, and really quite dramatically in 67 and then very dramatically in 1968, is that Vietnam starts to trigger two huge economic transformations. One is inflation. The other is a really dramatic rise in the imbalance of payments in the United States. In other words, we're sending way more money abroad than we're bringing in. Because that's what wars do, right? You send a lot of money abroad. And when that happens, international investors start to panic. So in early 1968, at the height of the Tet Offensive, in March of 1968, there is a massive run on gold. In the United States because in the, the old Bretton Woods system that was in place after World War II, investors had the right to exchange, literally exchange their dollars for gold. That happened in the spring of 1968. There was a week in the spring of 1968, at the height of the Tet Offensive, where inside the White House, policymakers were talking about the collapse of the Western global economy. Ooh. That's one of the reasons, it's not the only one, but it's one of the key reasons that Lyndon Johnson drops out of the presidential race in March of 1968. Because what he's doing, and if you, if you go back and read his withdrawals see, in light of this idea, what he's doing is he's reassuring investors. He's reassuring the global markets. Look, we're going to fix this and I'm going to fix it, the Vietnam War. Now he doesn't. And there's another run on gold in the early 70s, at which point Richard Nixon takes the US off of the gold standard. And that's the trigger that's allowing the dollar to float freely, which is what the gold system, the Bretton Woods system was meant to prevent. That's one of the great triggers for the economic transformations of the 1970s and 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kevin,
1: let me take you in a little bit different direction. Since you are a student of history,
2: look in your crystal ball. Where are we going from here? What's our future look like? Well, let me just say, thank you. Let me say one quick preface. Historians are the worst people. (laughs) I am very, very deeply concerned about the state of American democracy. I think we're in an incredibly dangerous place in the United States. And I am, it's important that we talk about what happened last january 6th that we talked about the mobs in Capitol. but you know the truth is i am convinced that no mob is going to overthrow american democracy there's a wonderful moment in an old documentary about the um violence at old miss in 1962 you know, so James Meredith tried to enroll the University of Mississippi in 1962, and there was massive, under a federal court order, there was massive rioting, and John Kennedy had to send in federal troops. And this documentary, which is Eyes on the Prize, um, has this wonderful footage of his attorney, well, not the, his assistant attorney general, not his attorney general, it was Bobby Kennedy, but his assistant attorney general, Nicholas Katzebach. And what he says is, look, you could riot all you wanted, but the president has the military. And in the end, James Meredith was gonna enroll. And maybe that meant that he was gonna have, that the president was gonna have to send a battleship up the Mississippi river, but he was gonna enroll. The truth is two things happen with mobs in American history. They burn out, they do terrible things, but they burn out or they're crushed. A mob will not topple American democracy. American democracy, if it's going to fall, is going to fall by the actions of powerful men who manipulate the system, who have no commitment to democratic principles. And my fear is that we are not doing enough to combat that. How we got here is a twisting, complicated way. I'm not trying to say the 60s put everything in motion. New things happened in the intervening years. But we've got to grapple with the consequences of what has happened in the last five years, and I fear that we are not doing that. One piece I think is important, and I think it's a, this is a lesson of the 1960s. I think the, the Trump right has done a very effective job mobilizing its base, The progressive left, the left, liberal left, has not. And I think Joe Biden has done a horrifically bad job in mobilizing his base. You know, there's a lot of talk, there has been over the last year, a little less now, about, is Joe Biden another Lyndon Johnson? Mm -hmm. And when you read a lot of those stories, which I would suggest you not do, what they emphasize is that Lyndon Johnson was the great manipulator of the Senate, right? And that the great accomplishments he had, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, were all about how Lyndon Johnson used his magic, right, to manipulate votes. And he did that, but that's not what got us the Civil Rights Act of 1964. What got us the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference bringing children into the streets of Birmingham, right? And then the civil rights movement and its allies, and it had important allies, organizing a lobbying campaign of enormous power, pushing congressmen to do things they didn't want to do. I'll give you one quick example. And this is one I just find really fascinating. So one of the key votes in the Senate on the Civil Rights Act was a conservative Republican senator Right, Nebraska, (laughs) right? There's no big civil rights in 1964. This senator, he loved to go home back to Omaha every weekend. That's what he would do. So every weekend when the Civil Rights Act was pending in the Senate in the spring of 1964, every weekend he'd go home, he'd land, the plane would land in Omaha airport, Every time he got off that plane, he was met by a different clergyman who just wanted to talk about civil rights for a while. (laughs) That's how lobbying works from the grassroots. That's how you Mm -hmm. take ordinary people, the power and energy they have, and you channel it into political power. What happens when Joe Manchin goes home to West Virginia and he's got a mine worker sitting in his office waiting for him? That's how you pass legislation. It's not that Lyndon Johnson could get too close to you physically, though that he did. It's that the grassroots pressure comes up for change. And I don't see that happening in the Democratic Party. So that's one key piece of it. But the other part that really drives me nuts, I did an interview with a newspaper, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about how there were the, – Republican, the Trump right, right, was arguing for how this election was stolen, and the reporter kept saying, well, there are different narratives. I have come to hate that word. Uh, uh, yeah. right. Amen. <laughs> because there's true stories, and there are false <laughs> ones. They're not competing. One's true, and one's mm-hmm. not. And we need to right. say as forcefully as we possibly can. Let me
1: ask a somewhat inchoate question relative to probably a follow-up on what Jerry was asking. Um, as a historian, there are waves and there are movements and so on and things change. and And I think we started in a country where slavery was okay uh, nobody's, eh, a few people, Adams and so on, didn't like it, but but in general, it was pretty well accepted. Um, I think most people now, you know, 70, 80%, probably think it's a bad thing. Uh, we began with some other things that, you know, only property owners could vote. I most people now would think that renters probably ought to have the vote. Uh, a good many people think that women probably ought to vote. And so, so, in terms of a more perfect union, are are we going back? And and it can happen. I mean, I spent some time in Germany and studied a little bit of German history. Yeah, things kind of went to hell there in in the 30s. Uh, Are we,
2: can we move beyond this? Are we going to move beyond this? Uh, Those are two different questions, but thank you. Um, Can we? Absolutely. Yes. So, Again, I'm going to give you a slightly longer answer than probably you want to hear. Um, There's a good deal of cynicism among um, the undergraduate population today. And one of the things that I will often hear, I teach a course on the civil rights movement. And one of the things I will sometimes hear from students, and particularly the more progressive students, is they'll say, well, that movement didn't accomplish anything. I, well, I can't, but I want to throttle them. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Because they, to say that is to minimize the enormous sacrifice that thousands and thousands and thousands of ordinary people made. I do believe the United States has made enormous progress in many, many fronts over the course of its history. And I think we have made enormous progress. But that doesn't mean that we always will. Right. It doesn't mean because the line is going up this way, it has gone up over the long this way, doesn't mean it can't go this way. And that's what's right. scary about the moment. That we- that's, that's one of the lessons from Germany. Uh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I keep thinking about? Do you remember this book, this came out, oh gosh, it's probably like 20 years ago now. Um, Victor Klemper, I think it was, um, who did, it's his diary of Nazi years. And he was a distinguished Jewish German Jew, who, a college professor, who escaped the worst of the Holocaust because he was married to a Gentile and because he was a veteran of World War One, he was very committed German. And to read this two volumes, it's the most depressing thing you're ever going to read, but what he does over and over again, especially in the 30s, is he says, oh, but this can't be happening here. This isn't who we are. As it gets worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And I'm not yeah. trying to... We are on the road to Nazism. What I am saying is, when you're in the middle of those changes, it's not always easy to see them. Uh, Kevin, you said oh. several times that uh,
1: the Trump Republicans have really done a wonderful job in terms of organizing, et cetera, and the Democrats have not. My question is, why haven't the Democrats done
2: it? Why are I, I don't organized? know. It's a great question. I don't know. Um, I think of the energy that was released with the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. Now, the tricky part about those protests is that they didn't have a kind of hard agenda, specific agenda, and I think that really hurt. But it's striking the degree to which the administration hasn't embraced that energy, you know, it hasn't tried to mobilize that energy. The civil rights movement as it broke through in the 1960s is absolutely the template of social reform in the united states of movements in the united states i have often told my students to me and this is this comes from i think being an irish american (laughs) i think that the african african americans are strikingly the most the best Americans we have because they have, to a remarkable extent, embraced that promise of America in face of Amer- America's continual refusal to allow their equal participation. They are the ones who will say, you said we all men are created equal. They're the ones who pushed that. I, you know, there was that great phrase that was used over and over again, and now 20 years ago, right, that Tom Brokaw brought in about World War II, so that generation being the greatest generation. I think you can make a really strong case for the African American freedom movement. Kevin,
0: in your book, you talk about the government regulation of uh, sexuality.
2: (laughs) I'm glad you brought that. that up sure i'm really glad you brought that up because it's one of the three major themes that we haven't really touched on it um this is a story of in the, in the middle decades is a better way of putting it in the middle decades of the 20th century the level of kind of regulation government regulation of sexuality was actually extremely high in the united states A number of states had regulations on their books that prohibited to some ex- regulated to some extent or another, um, the use of birth control. Right. The,
4: the interracial marriage.
2: Yeah, interracial marriage. Gay rights was non-existent. The level of oppression against gay and lesbian Americans was in probably at its most intense stage in the 1950s um, than it had been really at any other point in the 20th century. That gets broken open. It's in 1965 that the Supreme, and one of the key stories that I tell, that 1965 that the Supreme Court rules in um, Griswold versus Connecticut that a right to privacy exists. There was no right to privacy in the United States. It didn't exist. Supreme Mm -hmm. Court creates it out of the birth control case that reaches the Supreme Court in 1965. That's why I think 65 is such a critical year that that Voting Rights Act the transformations of Medicaid all come together at the same time. That ruling then leads directly to Roe v. Wade, which is one of the last stories that I tell in the book. That's a fundamental transformation. It's in that same period of Roe v. Wade that the gay rights movement is actually kind of bursts on the scene. Of course, it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it does kind of burst onto the scene. There are a series of court cases that are small, but they start to build the legal precedents that will eventually, eventually, result in the rulings on gay marriage, say, or on the discrimination in employment against gay and lesbian Americans. That's a fundamental transformation in the structures of American society. And in some ways, until now, obviously, it's the most enduring one.
5: A, a couple of things. Um... Leadership. Uh, you, you, you spoke uh, a few minutes ago, Kevin, about leadership, and you were talking, I think, about what LBJ did. And when we were, we were going back to this question of why the Democratic Party doesn't seem to be uh, strengthening, mobilizing, utilizing its base, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is wh- who's the leader? Is there a leader? Uh, Trump is a hell of a salesman. He is a exactly. hell of a salesman, yeah. Yeah. and um, and yeah. you know, I mean, I, I mean, the civil rights movement had Thurgood Marshall, um, and and, uh, and 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 Dr. King, and and you know, a, a few other um, men and women, uh, and and I guess when you refer to Stacey Abrams, <laughs> you refer to what's going on there. I, that strikes me as oh, that's really good news. There is there is a, you know, a, a, a brilliant, charismatic, courageous leader uh, there, and we we know some things about who she is. Um, I don't see that in the Democratic Party, uh, and 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 I guess my question to you as a historian is. Um, uh, and let me put it in a little broader context. but how how important is there, and is there any hope that leaders will emerge? Um, I was also thinking about, and I, I've read some things about this, like the environmental movement, which is sort of what what I've been most closely uh, involved with uh, in in my career. You know, my understanding is the environmental movement learned some things from the civil rights movement. I'm guessing maybe the civil rights movement learned some things from, uh, you know, the labor union movement. The anti-war movement also has been described. um, Well, I should say, yeah, sort of anti-war protests and concerns have been described as a catalyst for the environmental movement because it was something that a lot of people could agree on who otherwise didn't agree about the war. And there's the women's movement and and. Things that the women's movement in the 70s would have learned from those so I guess I'm two things one is your thoughts about the the sort of pollination of movements by what has preceded them and the other is this and I'm not thrilled about saying it is sort of the importance of, of either a small cadre or uh, a prominent individual leader in when we're talking about these social changes
2: yeah I I agree with almost all of that yes movements do and certainly did feed off each other in a way that you described really nicely um it's not just leadership obviously you're not saying that but it's not just leadership and having kind of that symbolic center that say king provided in the early 1960s can be really fundamentally important let me give you one number um that has fascinates me there, were poll- there was polling done at the end of the 1960s asking, did you ever participate in any protest? Less than 10% of Americans in the 1960s ever participated in any protest over the entire course of the 1960s. More, a larger percentage of the population participated in the Black Lives Matter marches in the summer of 2020. That was about 13, 14 percent of Americans said they participated in at least some march. Now maybe that's nothing more than going standing in your town square, but it's something. Yeah. That's why I find it somewhat frustrating that that energy hadn't, didn't kind of get tapped into to the extent that it should have. And I do think, Ken, that that is partly a question of leadership, your willingness to get out in front, to put yourself in front. of those movements as their are and that feels like that energy sort of dissipated not completely but to a substantial extent
5: i I'm, i hate to say it but i feel to some extent hillary clinton uh had an impact on that and not in a good way uh, i think
2: the party I think I would, I would push it all the way back to Bill, um, to tell you the truth. I think that, okay. that this is a that Bill Clinton helped you are not the gonna Democratic let me blame
5: the woman I want to blame. The woman.
2: <laughs> I don't want to let her completely off the hook, but okay. <laughs> I think that the, Bill Clinton pulled the Democratic parties to the center. And a center party is not particularly excited or interested in mass mobilizations. and. Mm-hmm. Clinton certainly stayed in the center. Um, Obama tapped into the emotion of movements. I mean geez I can so I was not there wasn't in Chicago yet but I so vividly remember that night when he when the election came in and there was a sense of transformation right but in office he didn't kind of mobilize people the way that a Lyndon Johnson, Again, I want to be really clear, and I wasn't there for a second. Lyndon Johnson didn't mobilize people. Lyndon Johnson saw the marches moving and said, I'm joining it. That's not the same thing as mobilizing them, but it is using it. And that's kind of what I'm arguing for. Ken, you said, is there hope? There is always hope.
4: Well, <laughs> yeah.
2: so,
3: is, okay, is, what do you say? Is, is, the. <laughs> The uh, King and the SCLC and SNCC core, the, all these organizations then had org- uh, structures and roots in yes. the community. That's right. And uh, now yeah. I don't see any of these yeah. groups really yeah. with uh, a lot of them just look like they're kind of rootless in this whole, uh, yeah. you know, they're in the internet, but right. Yeah. The basin, there's no base
2: yeah and and we have lost to such a dramatic degree a sense of community you know Mm -hmm. and technology is part of that Um, there are a lot of reasons for that i suspect that i don't really completely understand but i do think that there is a sense a sense of commitment to a greater good as you know in 50 years of an arguing for kind of rampant individualism certainly hasn't helped But, you know, that we could somehow politicize wearing a freaking mask in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, my God, you know, I mean, that's kind of stunning.
0: That was Kevin Boyle. His new book is titled The Shattering America in the 1960s. He is currently at work on The Splendid Dead a microhistory of political extremism and repression in the early 20th century. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the
6: book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.